Uh, so I've talked about this concept before, and I'd like to revisit it. Um, there is this idea of stated belief, the things that we say we believe, and functional belief, the things that we actually believe. So, uh, so stated belief is, you know, I say I believe a certain thing because I know I should say that I believe that thing. So I will say that, however... If you look at my actions and you evaluate the way that I live my life, you might actually be able to observe that I don't really believe the thing that I say I believe, right? So, so stated belief versus functional belief. So we're going to dig into this idea of functional belief a little bit this morning. Functional beliefs often reveal the deceptive nature of our hearts. Our functional beliefs often reveal the deceptive nature of our hearts. So we might like to prefer to think that we believe rightly. But when we act, functionally, our beliefs are played out in our life and they actually reveal that we're trying to convince ourselves of something other than what we believe. So, uh, so how does this play out? I'll give some personal examples. Uh, you've heard this one before. Uh, and I've mentioned it, and so I'll just mention it to you again. So my stated belief could be, it is my job to pick up my socks. It is, it is my job to pick up my socks, to not just leave them laying all over the house and in the bedroom. And so, so you might, like, I can say that I believe that. However, if you observe my actions, you might see that my functional belief might be Either, I hope it's this one, it's not that important to pick up my socks because the other belief is worse. It's my wife's job to pick up my socks, right? So that's dangerous, right? Yeah, and everybody's like, no, no, that's, you shouldn't think that. Right, so, so that's problematic. But, but, but what is shown is that my stated belief is different than my functional belief. Here's another stated belief. Eating too, cook, too many cookies is bad for me. Eating too many cookies is bad for me. If you observed my life, you would say, Alex, I don't think you believe that because you eat too many cookies far too often, right? Like that, so what I functionally believe maybe is that like the dopamine release from the sugar is worth the extra calories that I'm going to waste on it, right? Like that's my, that might be what I functionally believe. How about, okay, so um, when I was in college, uh, I was a musician, and especially like as a freshman in college, freshman, sophomore, uh, I was getting my degree in music. We always had to do these uh, performances. They were evaluation performances to see how well we were progressing in our skill. And, uh, and so my stated belief would be, I have nothing to be nervous about. The people who are evaluating are for me. They want nothing more than me to just do well at this, right? So that could be my stated belief. I have nothing to be nervous about. But functionally, if you looked at my body and what was happening, my hands would shake. My hands would shake. My, I lost all my breath support. I couldn't say, because I just couldn't even keep air in. Like, I, I was that nervous. And so functionally, like even though I would say I have nothing to be nervous about, functionally, my belief probably was, you know what, this is my only chance to prove myself to those who are judging me. Like functionally, my functional belief was different than my stated belief. So, uh, so a, a last one that I struggled with as I was coming up in the faith, the stated belief, Jesus has forgiven me and God loves me. That's my stated belief. But you know what my functional belief was? 
I cannot approach God until I prove that I've got it together. Functionally, I display that that's what I actually believe. So, so a massive piece of the Christian life, for what it's worth, is kind of discovering what these functional beliefs are and then letting the word of God speak the truth to those functional beliefs. Like we kind of have to let the word unwind our deceptive hearts and the ways that we like to twist things. So, so this morning we're going to talk about two foundational Bible teachings that we often functionally disbelieve. Two foundational Bible teachings that we often functionally disbelieve. Number one, all humans are born under condemnation from God. All humans are born under condemnation from God. Now, now there are cultural messages that shape us and and form us and get us like as much as we know that we should affirm this it is so hard for us to actually believe and own so that's the first one the second message the second foundational bible teaching that we often functionally disbelieve is this christians are commanded to love our neighbors Christians are commanded to love our neighbors, so we opt for self-preservation. We opt for focus on personal interests, often above what is most loving for our neighbors. Now, these two things are going to relate, and this morning, as we go through our passage, we are going to discover the relationship between these two things. So, uh, so we're in this series, this series on connecting with our neighbors, connect with. We're trying to get Jesus connected to our neighbors. That is our goal. So this, there's kind of this intentional focus that we have on making an effort to see our neighbors get a relationship with Jesus, get connected to Jesus. Now, why would we do this? Like, why would we put this energy forward? Well, one reason is that we might actually believe these things that we say we believe. These functional beliefs, these foundational Bible teachings that we say we believe, like we might actually believe them. Because we are accountable for what we say we believe. So here are the two foundational Bible teachings, again, that we often disbelieve. These two things up here, we are accountable if we say we believe them, We are accountable for how we own these beliefs. We must do something with them. So up front, I want to acknowledge something, and that something is this. There are probably a handful of people who are listening to me today who will either be uncomfortable or frustrated or annoyed that I would address uh, the concept of God's judgment, God's wrath because that's what we're talking about like the, the, to spend time talking on the, uh, about this subject matter uh we're like we're supposed to talk about god's love and the good things that god wants right yes and the reason we say that is because our cultural heart language has a problem with god being a judge who would hold people accountable Right, so this is this is problematic um and, and i so if you're in this this handful of people who would be frustrated with this idea. Uh, I just want to tell you two things. Number one, I want to tell you what my job is. My job as a pastor, as a preacher of God's word, is to preach and teach all of God's word. Like, I cannot just pick and choose what I would prefer to talk about and what I would prefer not to talk about, right? I have to, I'm accountable for teaching all of it. So that's number one. And number two, the Bible 
in the Bible, the content of what is in the scriptures, you see justice and God's judgments and God's wrath just as much as you see words about God's mercy and his love and his forgiveness. So we actually have to do something with the reality of God's justice and his judgments and his wrath. So so my goal this morning is I want us to achieve remarkable clarity on what the Bible has to say about these two things, what the Bible has to say about these two things. And the way that we're going to do that is we're going to kind of do this through a framework of three questions. Those three questions are in your notes. If you have them, uh, we'll be working our way through these three questions. Those three questions are, number one, what are we humans doing? Number two, what is God's response? And number three, is there hope? So as we move forward into this, I just like to pray and ask the Lord to be present with us in this moment. So would you pray with me, please? But as we consider the reality of your holiness, of who you are, of your goodness and your purity, Lord, when we compare ourselves to that, we compare ourselves to your standard, we have to deal with the reality of your wrath, of your judgment. And so, Lord, uh, I ask that, we would be very aware that your loving and guiding presence is with us as we hear these words. Or that these are not words that you speak to us out of hate, but you speak to them to us out of love, out of helping us understand who you are. So Lord, I, I ask that uh, if hearts are hard to these words this morning, that you would make hearts soft that you would make us receptive, that we would seek to understand what it is that your word says and deal with you as you present yourself and not as we would prefer you present yourself. So Lord, we trust you for all these things and we pray them in Jesus' name, amen. So number one, what are we humans or humanity doing? Romans 1, 18 and 19 says this. It says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. So when he's talking about men, he's talking about all of humanity, every single human being. Paul, at this point, he's going to get explicit about human nature, his evaluation of human nature. And so, so what he says is, you know what? God has made the truth very clear to human beings. He's made the truth very clear to human beings. We're going to talk about what truth he has made clear, but but this is what we human beings, we tend to do with that truth and that clarity that God provides. We ignore it. We pretend that it doesn't exist. We avoid dealing with it. We suppress it. That's the word that Paul uses here. We distract ourselves from it, right? So that's the concept that he's moving forward with. We're getting an idea of what it is that we humans are doing. So verse 20 He says, for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. He's saying God has made his nature very clear. His eternal power, his his divine nature, these things can be clearly seen even as we observe the world around us. So what he's saying, as we suppress the truth, what Paul is actually saying is that our hearts are resisting something. Our hearts resist, naturally, this truth. 
that God is the only powerful and perfect ruler of everything. So, so Paul is saying, like, we human beings, we have this natural inclination to resist this truth. So, so what is true about God? What can be observed in creation? God, we can observe that God created everything. We can observe that God sustains everything by his power. You know, we can observe that in his common grace, God gives us good gifts. He gives us gifts of beauty. Like we're driving outside and we enjoy the fall colors right now, right? Like this gift of beauty, it makes us stand in awe of uh, the creator of these things. Gives us gift of family and gifts of shelter, Gifts of medicine, look at how technology has developed. God made it possible for this technology to come along, for for medicine to come about in the way that it has. Gifts of community, gifts of relationship with one another that we would know what it means to have people in our lives who care for us. Gives us gifts of skill and gifts of purpose. God is just like this generous giver of gifts. He's caring for us. He's he's managing creation. You know, like... uh, so one thing that I like to do uh, every you know, six months or so is I like to take a chance to get away and go to Starved Rock State Park. And I go out there, uh, pray, uh, seek the Lord's just vision for what it is that he wants for our church. And, and so I spend time out there. And, and spending time at Starved Rock, I just get to observe the beauty of God's creation. And there's nothing that like you feel so small because you look at these massive cliffs, you look at these waterfalls that you go past, you just look at the the forest as it is laid out and you get this chance to feel really, really small. You get a sense of God's transcendence, his beauty, his power. These things become very evident. And so, so Paul's saying, as you observe creation, as you look at what God does, you can see that God is, is a perfect and powerful ruler of everything. And so he goes on in verse 20 and he says, so they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him because they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. So so what he's saying is if you're looking, like if you have your eyes open, God's power and perfection can be easily observed. But Paul's point is that that we human beings, we try to avoid looking. We try to avoid acknowledging. And and, and if we by chance happen to see it, like if it, it happens to come in front of our eyes, then we find ways to avoid acknowledging what we saw. So he says uh, they don't give thanks. And you might think, oh, that's weird. Like, why, would he, why is giving thanks the thing that he emphasizes? Like, he's, he's trying to get down to the core of, like, what is wrong with humanity? And he says they don't give thanks. Like, that kind of, kind of seems meaningless because the way that we deal with the idea of thanks. But, but when he says give thanks, what he's talking about is giving credit where credit is due. So like think you work, you, uh, you're, you're on a team at work. You have this job that you're given and you, you work together with this team. And I want you to imagine that you do the bulk of the work for this team. Your team is lazy and they can't do their job. They can't manage the things that they're supposed to do. Many of you probably know this experience, right? Okay, so I want you to imagine that one of your team members, when your boss comes in and starts to evaluate and tells you how good of a job your team did, your team member steps up and say, well, thank you. I, I managed all of that. I did that myself. 
right? I was able to take care of it. These, these other guys didn't really handle it that well, but I took care of it, right? So when it, he's, he's not only like not giving thanks to you for the work that you did, but he's taking credit for the work that you did, right? This is what Paul is saying that we're doing. When we refuse to acknowledge God, we don't even give credit where credit is due. We won't recognize him for what he has done. So what are we doing? In our hearts, we dethrone God. In our hearts, we knock God off of his throne. So how do we do this? Well, Paul goes on in verse 22. He says, claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Verse 24, therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. So when he says the word images, insert the word idols. Idols from the second commandment, you shall not worship any false idols or you shall not have any false idols, graven images. That's what he's talking about there when he says the word images. And if you read on, if you connect verse 23 to verse 24, he equates idols with this thing that he calls the lusts of their hearts. These two things are the same. He's saying when they worship images, God is giving them over to their images, the lusts of their hearts. So, so, uh, so lusts is probably not a good word for us to understand what's going on. In fact, the problem is, is that we don't really have a good English word to explain this word lusts, what it comes from in the Greek. And so Pastor Tim Keller, he is like a pro at talking about the concept of idolatry today in our world. And so I really appreciate the words that he has to say. He talks about lusts as this word lusts as super desires, so, so uh, it's desires, but they have been elevated to the point where they consume everything else in your heart, where they become kind of the primary thing in your heart, the thing to which all other things orient, super desires. So an, another way that we could say this, if we were going to define idols, idols are the desires that take God's place in our hearts. The desires that take God's place in our hearts. So... The question then to ask, as we like try to figure out, okay, what might my idols be or where might idols exist? Well, the question to ask is, what thing takes importance over honoring God and giving him thanks? That thing for you is an idol. Like, fill, fill in the blank for me for a second. Like, and don't say it out loud because people will judge you or something. I don't know. Uh, no, but like, fill in the blank with me for a second. Without blank... I am nothing. Without blank, I am nothing. Or, without blank, life is meaningless. Whatever you put in the blank, that thing is your idol. So, uh, for me, uh, I'll just kind of give a personal example. Uh, the, the experience, uh, as I was in my early 20s, the experience of making good music with good musicians was an idol for me. I wanted to make really good music with really good musicians. And uh, there was a time in my life where that was the thing that I oriented my life around because that experience was so fulfilling for me, right? And the Lord had to show me, you know, you're really orienting too many things around this. You might even like be willing to disobey some of my commands for this thing, right? So, so I don't know what fills in the blank for you. It might be romance. It might be entertainment, 
Might be experience, could be profession, or approval, or knowledge, or family. All of those things, by the way, are good things. They're all good things, but they all can become idols when they take the wrong place in our hearts. So, so chapter 2 kind of goes on to explain that even religious practice can become an idol. Even, even good works can become an idol because uh, these things, when they define you, they become the way that you try to prove yourself when you can't be honest about the things that you've done because it would force you to admit that maybe you don't do all the good works there are to do, then those things even can become idols. Okay, so what are we doing? What, are, what is humanity doing? We take the things that are not God, that have no divine power, no eternal power, no divine nature, and we give them God's place in our heart, and they become ultimate. We orient all of our lives around those things, and we will do whatever it takes to keep those things in its place. And we will ignore God's word, we will disobey God's command in order to do that. So we all do this, every single person. Since the the very first people were here, every single person has found something else to put in God's place in their heart. We all give created things a place in our hearts that only our creator deserves. So this is the highest level of cosmic treason that we have committed. Because God made our hearts. God made us. He intends to give us good gifts. He does give us good gifts. He created the world. He sustains the world. But we said, you know what? No, we'd rather decide what's most important. You don't get to say that. So chapters one through three of Romans, if you were to read the whole thing, and I encourage you this week to go ahead and read it, they expand on this idea, how religious people do this, how non-religious people do this, how we're all guilty of it. And so chapter three, if we're just gonna fast forward to chapter three because it sums up all of it, and this is what it says in verse 10. It says, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands No one seeks God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. So because we've committed this cosmic treason of of giving to created things what only belongs to our creator, Paul is saying the treason that we have committed is so egregious that even the good things we might do seem meaningless in comparison. So what are we doing? We're consistently, desperately falling short of giving our creator his rightful place, the place that he deserves. So this moves us to our second question then. What is God's response? Romans 1.18, it says, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven. So God's response to this initially, the word that we're given is wrath, it's anger. And this is not just like some kid with a temper tantrum. This is like a judge who recognizes when a horrible criminal is standing in his courtroom. So, so freeze, because you heard me say that God is angry with you. And that's true. And you might ask the question, like, so if God's angry with me, does he even like me? Well, I would tell you, yes, in fact, he loves you. You know what, there are so many ways that we reflect God's goodness in the world, and and you don't have to be a Christian to do this, right? Like, we have the image of God inside of us. We reflect God's goodness in creation. We are holy. We have purpose, and God recognizes all of this. 
But when we give first place in our hearts to things that do not deserve it, we actually corrupt what God intended to be good. We corrupt these good creations that he made. This is why he cares so much about it. So, so God likes us. God, in fact, loves us while he is simultaneously angry at what we have turned ourselves into. And so, so it says that his wrath is revealed. The idea is that it's happening right now. So there are three key ways that this is happening. And we'll observe two in Romans and one in the book of Genesis. So uh, the first one in Romans is this. Uh, Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity. So the first way that God exercises his wrath is that he lets us have our way. He lets us pursue the thing that we're pursuing. He gives us over to that thing we're pursuing. God lets false gods rule our lives. These are things that cannot bear the weight of being God for us, but he says, okay, have at it and see how it turns out for you. There's only one person in the whole universe who can actually sustain that place in our hearts. But God gives us over to these super desires and and we'll chase after these things so hard. And if anything gets in our way, then you know what happens? These gods become debilitating to us. They create issues for us. They control us. And we actually become more and more like machines and less and less human like what we were created for. So uh, again, I am indebted to, to Tim Keller, Pastor Tim Keller, because he actually... What he does, he talks about the experience of anxiety. This is a debilitating human experience. And and he shows that at least part of the cause of anxiety is because of idolatry. So let let me talk about this for a second. So this is what he says. He says, anxiety is idolatry mapped onto the future. And so so this is how you can see it, because it becomes intensified when I let something finite become my reliability for the future. And then, so like, then I realize I might not get that finite thing. I, or that thing will not be secure for me in the future, and I get very worried. So, uh, so how does this play out? Well, if, if you have money invested in the stock market right now, and things are crazy and going up and down, and who knows what's going to happen, and if that's your security for the future, you might right now be very anxious because that's an idol for you. Or, right now, like we're watching anxiety play itself out in our country, right? Because you have people who align with one political party or who align with the other political party who are very anxious about their party losing. And if our party loses, then this is like causing us to rip each other apart right now because if our party loses, then we need to leave the country. If our party loses, then we need to mistreat anybody who voted for the other candidate, right? Like this is what people do. And so anxiety is idolatry simply mapped onto the future. So, so what Paul is saying is that God will give us over. If we choose to pursue these things, God will give us over to them. The second way his wrath is revealed. Verse 16 of Genesis chapter 2. The Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of the tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in that day you eat of it, you shall surely die. So the second way that that God's wrath is revealed is that he sends death into the human experience. 
God sends death into the human experience. God made it very clear to the first human, Adam, like what his response would be if he disobeyed, if he elevated something else in his heart. And as a result, Adam did. Adam disobeyed. He elevated something else in his heart. And as a result, death is now part of creation. It's something that we have to deal with. It's a certainty that we can guarantee. And this is part of the way God's wrath is revealed. It becomes our greatest enemy. So the final way God's wrath is revealed, Romans 2, 5. But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. So our God is just. And we have committed great injustice. Eventually, God is going to do something about that injustice. So another way you could say it, final way that his wrath is revealed is that God is preparing to finally condemn sin and sinners for eternity. And the idea is that without intervention, when God judges everything at the end of time, every human being's original destiny, the thing that they start with is to be under his condemnation, is to forever be in the conscious awareness of his active wrath towards them. So how do we sum this up? Human hearts, if left alone, always lead to ruin. Every time. Human hearts, if left alone, always read to ruin. So if you just read these first three chapters of the book of Romans, they make this point with utter clarity. This is what would be true of us if Jesus had left our hearts alone. This is what would be true of us if the, if the people who shared the gospel with us never touched our hearts, never if they just left us to ourselves. Church, this is what is true of our neighbors if their hearts are left alone. So final question, number three, is there hope? Before he started writing anything regarding wrath, Paul wrote verses 16 and 17. This is what he says. He says, for I'm not ashamed of the good news. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. To the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. The hope is that God offers salvation. Like read the rest of Romans and see that salvation. It comes with clarity through the person of Jesus Christ, the gospel, the good news about Jesus. And what does Jesus do? Well, verse 17, it says the righteousness of God, literally the rightness of God. So, so we're wrong, right? We, we are consistently in the wrong. We consistently lift wrong things up in our hearts, but the rightness of God is being revealed. How? Jesus brings us salvation by giving us his righteousness. He gives it to us as a gift, and then he takes on himself our treason and goes to the cross and suffers the wrath of God for our sakes, in our place, for our sin. And he offers to any who would believe in him the gift of forgiveness and a restored relationship with God and salvation. That's 
why the good news is so good. So here's what else happens. When we see how corrupt we are, we actually see our hearts for what they are, and then we recognize that God extends forgiveness and love and mercy to us. That truth begins to change our hearts. It actually gives us new hearts. So so the prophet Ezekiel, way before Jesus ever comes on the scene, this is what he says. He says, uh, you know, God is going to take your heart of stone, your hard heart, and he's going to give you a new heart, a heart of flesh. He's going to make you a person who is now responsive to God's word, who learns to put God in his rightful place in your heart. So you get a new heart because Jesus gives us his righteousness and takes our sin. Jesus gives us his righteousness and becomes a trustworthy anchor for our souls. Jesus gives us his righteousness and destroys the sting of death. It's like uh, there's this bee who comes to sting you, but you don't have to be afraid of the bee now when it's coming at you because the stinger has been ripped off of it. Jesus gives us his righteousness and offers us eternal life and new creation with God and his saints. These are all the gifts that Jesus has given. He undoes all of the the punishments that would come to us as a result of our sinful hearts. So does this mean that we suddenly stop having idols in our hearts? Well, no. We read another place in the scripture, no one is without sin this side of heaven, but we are given eyes to see those idols with clarity in our hearts and then we are given the security that we can approach our Father and confess and repent and we don't have to worry about being struck by lightning or anything like that because he welcomes us into relationship because of what Jesus has done. Our security is in Christ. Now we still deal with the earthly consequences of our idolatry, but but we actually have the ability to confront these idols knowing that the one who created everything loves us and is for us. So it's our joy to say that even if we lack every other thing that we might set our hearts towards, at the end of the day, we still get him, the one who loves us, and it's for us. So church, the good news this morning is that our hearts held us under God's condemnation, but by giving our lives to Jesus, we can be forgiven and set free and given new hearts. And this is the only way that we actually get new hearts. It's the only way that our neighbors end up getting new hearts. Okay, so what? So what? Number one, when we don't strive to connect, connect being that idea that we want to meet with our neighbors and connect them with Jesus, when we don't strive to connect, we either lack trust in God's word or love for our neighbor. And I don't know which category you fall into, but I can tell you that when we don't strive to do it, we are, we are missing one of these things. We either don't trust God for what he says or we don't really love our neighbor. So I stand up here uh, as a person who is not actually like, when I'm telling you to prioritize these things of connecting with your neighbor, I'm telling myself too because I've not done a good job of prioritizing it up to this point. Like I'm in the same boat as many of you and and what I think we need to do is we actually like need to start asking God to change our hearts in this realm to help us see things as they actually are. 
to have enough compassion for our neighbor that we would be striving to find ways to introduce them to Jesus, to have enough compassion to be willing to endure criticism for the chance to maybe introduce them to Jesus. So we need to seek God to give us compassion for our neighbors and at the same time to trust his truth. So what number two? Jesus can become everything to those who see their hearts rightly. So part of Jesus' ministry on earth was to expose hearts. He helped people understand their hearts for, for what they were. He helped them see themselves as they are, as people who are corrupt, as people who are opposed to God, but he doesn't leave us there. He extends a hand and says, follow me. Let me take first place. Prioritize me and receive mercy and grace and forgiveness. So now, now we Christians have this beautiful gift that even when our retirement accounts deplete, we still have Christ who loves us. Even when suffering comes, we still have Christ who loves us. Even when our future is uncertain, we still have Christ who loves us. Even when we get the diagnosis that isn't good, we still have Christ who loves us. Even when we get betrayed by somebody, we still have Christ who loves us. Even when we fail to become everything that we had hoped to become, we still have Christ who loves us. Even when we're staring death in the face, we still have Christ who loves us. And we have the amazing opportunity to extend the gift of knowing Christ to others, others who don't yet know him. So church, would you pray with me, please? Lord, this morning, as we consider the reality of your judgment, Lord, I ask more um, clearly that you would impress upon our hearts the state of those who don't yet know you. Lord, that that we would have clarity that the only way you can give new hearts, the only way that you can set people right with you is through the blood of Jesus Christ. That we would have compassion for them impressed upon our hearts because, Lord, what have you done for us? You've given us a new destiny. You've given us a new purpose. You've restored our hearts. May we want to see the same thing done to those around us. Lord, would you help these words to sit with us? And Lord, would you help us to hold close to our hearts the truth that even when we have nothing, we have Jesus. Lord, we trust you for these things. And we pray all of them in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.